Almighty Father, provider, sustainer, our rock of refuge, our abiding presence, you and you alone are worthy of all praise, all honor, and all glory. You are faithful and you are true. Your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies are new every morning. Hallelujah. We come this morning because these things are true. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for gathering us this morning. Thank you for leading us here according to your commandment and giving us your word and your spirit, giving us each other that we might know you and that we might walk in your ways. Lord, help us. Help us this morning, for we are so quick to grumble. More than that, we're not only quick to grumble, but we often allow our grumbling to become outright quarreling and hostile anger toward your providences in our lives. We confess this as sin, Lord. Grant us, I pray, faith that we may trust your ways and that we might humbly receive them from your gracious and loving hand as one who is wise and good. Would you convince us of your ever-abiding presence with us this morning, I pray, and cause us to rest in your constant care and provision for us. You've proved that to each of us day after day. And this morning, Father, I pray that we'll trust you by faith, moment by moment. Bring us now, Lord, I pray, to receive your word with eager hearts and ready minds, that we might know you, and that we might walk by faith in your ways. We ask this and these things, these eternal and precious and abiding things, we ask them from you, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our sure and strong rock, who is present this morning with us. We ask, Father, these things in your, his name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> Look with me, if you will, at Exodus chapter 17. We're going to be carefully considering verses 1 through 7 this morning. So keep your Bibles open there, and it will serve you well. To get us up to speed, I want us to note that God's people have exited Egypt. They had left the place that they had known and lived in for many, many hundreds of years. And so it wasn't just a vacation that they were on in Egypt. It was a place where they were established and settled. They knew the ways. They knew their standards. They had their homes. They were, they were people who were settled in this land. The Lord brought them out of this place of Egypt, their slavery and their bondage. And he brought them through in a triumphant way through the Red Sea. And he showed God's people that he alone was Lord, even over the mighty nation of Egypt of that time and Pharaoh himself, who considered himself a deity. The Lord showed himself strong and mighty over the Egyptians. The Lord then led his people into the wilderness of Shur. At the end of chapter 15, we see them at the wilderness of Shur where the people of God found bitter water and the Lord displayed his attribute of a God who is a healing God and a God who will bring rest to them. He not only made their bitter water sweet, but he also gave them a place in Elam where there were refreshing springs where they could live and abide and have shelter. The Lord now moved them out of this place of Elam. So out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, 
into the wilderness of Shur, out of Shur into Elam, into now from Elam into the wilderness of Sin, as we saw last week. This word sin is not an indicator of the, uh, um, it's, not, it's not indicating a, a, a moral attribute of the wilderness. It's just the, the name, it's the title of the word uh, for, for, the, for the area. And it just happens to be the English word that we use for sin. So it's not derivative of uh, its wickedness or evil nature. It's just simply the wilderness of sin. The Lord brought them into this wilderness of sin. And there they began grumbling because of their hunger. This was last week in chapter 16. And the Lord showed himself to be a sufficient provider and sustainer of his people again. He was gracious to this grumbling and sinful people. This people that refused to acknowledge who he was. And we find that the book of Exodus not only was trying to show, we find that Moses was not only trying to show us through this book of Exodus that the Egyptians needed to know who God was and what his ways were like. It says in Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh asked Moses this question, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's the question we have to ask ourselves this morning. It's the very issue that the Lord was trying to settle with God's people, with the Hebrews. As they're out in the wilderness, they have to answer this question. Who is the Lord and why is it that we should obey his voice? So now this lesson that was thoroughly shown to the Egyptians through the plagues now has turned as the Lord is teaching his people and even teaching us this morning. Who is the Lord and why is it that we should obey his voice? He's convincing God's people of these things now. He's showing them who he is through these wilderness experiences. Why? Because all of us know that we're heading, we're in chapter 17 this morning, but where are we heading? We're heading to Exodus 20, right? And what is the Lord going to do? He's going to say, this is what, how I want you to live. And he's establishing in the wilderness why they should obey his voice, because he is the Lord God Almighty who deserves this obedience, this life of devotion. We find that they come now out of the, the, uh, the wilderness of sin. And it says in our passage this morning in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. And they ended up camping at Rephidim, as we see there in verse 1. The Lord is going to show himself to be a God who's not only one who can provide, but this morning we're going to see that he is a God who's going to convince his people that he is present. Notice at the end of our passage, the last question that's asked in verse 7 of chapter 17. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question that God's people are asking here. And it's the question that so often we begin asking. When we have struggles and conflicts, when we have issues that are going on in our lives and we deal with certain difficulties or struggles, if those difficulties and trials are things that kind of interrupt our life for a week or so, the Lord teaches us certain lessons through those. And there's no doubt the Lord teaches us faith in those particular areas. But brothers and sisters, what happens when the event or circumstance that takes place in your life changes your life forever? There's no longer any ability for you to go back to where you were. You begin after the months and even maybe years have passed by, you begin not only wondering but also being convinced that there is no longer any ability for us to go back to the way life used to be. We've got to deal with life as it is right in front of us. And as we struggle with the difficulties and the trials that may be in the present, as we've been enduring them week after week, month after month, maybe even for years, we acknowledge as God's people here in the book of Exodus are acknowledging, you know what? We're not going back to Egypt. There isn't any more 
place of refuge, a place where we can settle down and we can just we can go back to our homes and we can unpack and we can we we can begin doing the things that we were doing. There's no longer any ability to go back to Egypt. We're out here now and there is no return. God is teaching his people. Because all of us need to know when we're in the midst of these trials that seem to be enduring and long. And it's one thing to deal with a, a, a struggle or trial for a few weeks. But when it goes on and on and on. And you wake up and you begin asking, is this really a trial? Or is this something I've just been dreaming for so long? Could, could it be that I open my eyes this morning and all of this stuff is going away? And things can be normal and regular. And what I would have think is normal and regular. You know, sometimes you wake up morning after morning and you realize this is where we are. And we're not going to go back. Do you know what we need to know in those times, brothers and sisters? That the Lord is with us. That though it seems our journey has taken us way out in the middle of nowhere, places that we would have never assumed or imagined It's easy for us to begin assuming or maybe even thinking, you know what, maybe the Lord isn't with us way out here. That's what God's people are doing here. They've come to the realization that they're not going back to Egypt. There is no going back. The new normal is a new normal. And there's trials and struggles and difficulties all along the way. And they're asking the question, is the Lord with us or not? My prayer is that as we look at this passage this morning, we'll be convinced that the Lord is indeed with us as he was with his people during the time of Exodus 17. We're going to be looking at our passage this morning in two different sections. It's only seven verses, so let's look at it with two points in mind, two main ideas in mind. Let's notice first the dispute that's presented, the dispute that's being presented to us in verses 1 through 3. The dispute presented in verses 1 through 3, and then point number 2, the deliverance provided. The deliverance provided. And this is verses 4 through 7. So if you want to hang your thoughts on these two ideas, first, the dispute that's presented, verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, the deliverance provided, verses 4 through 7. Verses 4 through 7. So notice with me, if you will, again, at verse 1 of chapter 17, as we look and notice that it is all the congregation... This whole mass of thousands and thousands of people, it says, all of the congregation in verse 17 of Israel moved from, moved on from the wilderness of sin. And it says here, by stages in our translation. The point here is not so much that they're moving along in groups. If you look at other translations, they try to get at this and help you understand this. It's not so much that they're moving along in stages in the sense of by groups, but instead it's the idea of they're moving from one place to the next. They're moving from place to place. They're they're wandering around and they're encamping in one place and another place and another place. And here they are again, uprooting their lives and they're moving again, this huge group of people, and they are encamping themselves now at the foot of Rephidim. And so the point here is that the tension is rising, brothers and sisters. They're on the move again. And again, let me remind you, they were in Egypt for hundreds of years, established in their own home. These weren't people who traveled all over America. No, they stayed right where they were. They were slaves, and they did the same thing every day. And they did the same thing that their father did every day, the kids did. And it went on and on for hundreds of years. And so these are people who are not used to being wanderers. And they're out in the wilderness, and they're moving, it says. They're moving, as it says in our passage. Notice it says they're moving by stages. 
They're moving by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And so this isn't a wandering around in the wilderness aimlessly. No, the Lord is moving them from place to place. The Lord is is taking them from one place and allowing them to camp and another place and allowing them to camp. And he's moving them around. And now we find that the Lord has brought them to a place where they will encamp. It says they camped at Rephidim. They camped at Rephidim. And as they set up camp and they are there and they've been moved there by the command of the Lord. So we know the Lord is guiding them all along the way. They come upon a real problem in this place that the Lord has led them. They're facing a very difficult problem. The last portion of verse 17 says, But there, in that place, there was no water for the people to drink. There was no water for this mass group of men and women and children and animals and livestock. This was a serious problem. This wasn't a slight issue. This was something that was very, very serious and critical. Dehydration is a real thing. And they were going to be experiencing it soon if they did not get water for their flocks and for their families. So what happens? Notice our text. Specifically, it makes the connection, I think, in almost every translation. Notice the transition from verse 1 to verse 2. It says that there was no water for them to drink. And then in verse 2 it says, therefore. In other words, the lack of water caused something to happen in the lives of the people of Israel. This this whole horde and mass of congregation, the people of Israel, they realized that there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, verse 2, it says the people quarreled with Moses. They quarreled with Moses. We see here that their fearless faith has come back. As was mentioned earlier, the Lord had provided to them every step of the way. The Lord provided them for them at the end of Exodus 15, turning bitter water to sweet. The Lord provided for them in chapter 16, providing the, the bread from heaven, the manna, so that they can eat. How then could it be that these people, these faithless people, were convinced that somehow the Lord would not provide for them today? The same reason we do. <laughs> it's the exact same reason we do. Every one of us in here have a testimony that the Lord has provided and been faithful over and over and over again. Not just to give us everything that we want, but regularly and carefully caring for us and providing for us to bring us to this point. And yet, and yet, confronted with another issue, we begin to doubt whether the Lord is going to provide for us again today. Again today. Instead, their faithless fear caused them to not simply grumble as they did in Exodus 15 with the bitter water. Exodus 15, it says they grumbled against the Lord. Or in Exodus 16, verse 2, where it says they lacked bread and they began to grumble. What we find here is a different word. It speaks of grumbling, yes, but it's a grumbling that's become more acute. It's become a grumbling that is more intense, more filled with anger and hostility. This idea here, as we see in our passage is that they didn't grumble, as it says, but it says they, verse 2, the people, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. They quarreled with Moses. This is a grumbling that has been intensified. It's a grumbling that is, that is more sharp and hostile in its nature. And so they quarreled with Moses, and what is, what is the sharp demand? We see this very sharp demand from this quarreling. They say to Moses, give us water to drink. Imagine Moses at this point. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people and their livestock, you're out in the middle of the wilderness, 
and the people come to you and say, give us water now. It's an impossible task. Moses can't provide water for himself, much less for the thousands. Moses is at his his wit's end. There's nothing he can do except for to continue to lead the people as God has called them to. No doubt Moses was the one that was leading them according to the commandment of the Lord, taking them from place to place all over this wilderness. And now they find themselves here in this, in this, um, in this wilderness, uh, moving from the wilderness of sin to this place called Rephidim, where they find there is no water. They demand from Moses to give them water. This whole congregation is convinced that Moses has led them there and that Moses is the one who is at fault. Faced with this impossible demand, Moses pleads with them with two questions. Notice these two questions that Moses begins to plead with them concerning. He realizes he cannot fulfill the demand that they have given to him. So it says in verse 2, Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Do you remember that's exactly what Moses and Aaron were talking about in in the last chapter, in chapter 16? They're saying, The Lord has brought us out here. The Lord has taken it as this place where there's no bread, and in this case, where there's no water. And yet, the people of God are coming to Moses and Aaron, and they're complaining to them, saying, you're the one that did this to us. So they're blaming Moses, who is the one who is in front of them, and they're saying it is Moses' fault while they're there, and it's Moses' incompetence, his inability to lead and to do what God's called him to do. Moses is asking him the question, why do you quarrel with me? It's not me that's doing this. Moses goes on and asks a second question. He not only asks, why do you quarrel with me, but he asks the people of God, all this congregation, he says, why do you test, notice this, the Lord? He's saying, if you're you're quarreling, it's not to me, but it's it's actually the Lord that's brought us here, then this, this being upset and hostile and angry about where we are and the fact we have no water. This is, this is a test that you're testing, not me, guys. You're testing the Lord in this regard. You're testing the Lord in your anger and hostility. It is the Lord that you are putting to the test. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, that we are so much like these people. Forgetting the faithful provision of the Lord, and not only grumbling, which is sin in itself, but often taking our grumbling to the next level and breaking out into outright anger and hostility, indeed quarreling at the providence that the Lord has handed to us. Yes, you may blame those who are around you and not realize while you're blaming them that you're actually not quarreling against them or testing them. You're testing the Lord who's placed you in these circumstances. These situations and these circumstances are given to us in each of our lives according to the divine goodness and wise God that, he is, that he's placed us in these things. And so when we confront these difficult times, these trials, these circumstances, we need not be angry with those who are around us. It's easy to blame the people that are in our house, right? Because they deserve it. No, it's the Lord that's placed us there. And we need to acknowledge that our anger and our frustration, our quarreling, is against God when we complain about the providences that he has placed us in. Notice as well verse 3. Let's see how how the Lord responds to this. Or excuse me, let's see how the people respond to this. In verse 3, it says that the people hear him ask the question, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? Now that should solicit, you know what, you're right Moses. 
You're making complete sense. You're, you're speaking truth here. The Lord has brought us here, and we're sinning by testing the Lord in this. We need to trust the Lord like He provided for us in, in, in Exodus chapter 16 with the bread, and as He provided for us at the end of chapter 15 with making the bitter water sweet. We need to trust Him now. That's exactly what we need to do. But, as we see here, the people's heart are just as hard as our hearts. The people listen to this, this reasoning this common sense, this truth that Moses is trying to communicate to them. And they refuse to allow this amazing offense that Moses has towards them, this, this assault, this incompetence, this overwhelming sorrow that Moses has brought upon them. Don't let a little bit of reasoning and common sense and truth enter into this, Moses. No, you're to blame, and we're going to lynch you for this. That's what's being said here in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water. In other words, nothing could convince them because of their lack of water, that Moses wasn't to blame. They weren't going to listen to Moses, try to help them see their sin in their own hearts, but instead they continued to thirst for water, and it says, and the people grumbled against Moses. And they began grumbling against Moses, and here was their their, their complaint. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? You see, this is the point I wanted to make earlier. They're realizing now we're not going back to Egypt. That All of this stuff that we're having to deal with and actually get bread every day from God and not be able to do... Take, we can't farm. They couldn't, they couldn't make their own food. They had to depend on the Lord every day to bring them bread. And now they're here with no water. And we have to depend on the Lord every single day to take care of this for us. We can't take care of ourselves. We want to live lives that are more independent. And the Lord's making them live lives that are dependent upon Him. They're saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us, our children. And anytime somebody makes a complaint, if you really want to get at them, Bring children into it. You know, children are going to die. That 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 solicits all kinds of fear and agony. So here he's saying, you're going to kill us, and look at our look at our big big eyed children standing here that are that are without water, that are thirsting to death. Look, you're going to kill them, Moses, and all of our livestock. We're going to kill all of us with thirst. You brought us out here in the desert only to kill us. They were pretty persistent. And they were very clear about what they thought was the extent of this problem. The congregation had quickly become a mob. And they had turned their vehemence and their quarreling against Moses. And they were convinced that Moses was the one to be blamed. Their being bothered turned into grumbling and turned into quarreling. This is the picture of our own hearts, brothers and sisters. When given a challenge or a difficult providence in our long period in our lives, what will we do? Will we humble ourselves before God and receive from His hand whatever our lot may be, acknowledging that He's wise and good? Or will we shake our fists and move to accusing God and everybody around us of the circumstances that we're having to deal with? My prayer is that the Lord will teach us. That the Lord will teach us that when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My prayer is that the Lord will help us as we consider our disputing and our quarreling and our grumbling against God and the things in our lives. That the Lord is good and that he is He is orchestrating these things in our lives. 
I've said it many, many times. The Lord's trying to make you holy. And that looks very different than what you think holy is in your life. Everything that happens to us is for our sanctification. And the Lord is good. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's so tough that you wonder whether your faith is going to hold up or not. But we have a wonderful promise in 1 Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, stand. Stand in those difficult times, knowing that our Lord is with us. These disputes, these quarrelings that we have, we need to understand them as sin. God is not to be blamed. Point number two, if you will. Point number two, the deliverance provided. The deliverance provided, verses 4 through 7. Notice with me, if you will, verse 4. We see in verse 4 that Moses has come to the point of prayer. He's come to the point of crying out to the Lord. It says here that Moses comes and he, he, he feels the t- intensity and the, and the difficulty of, of these people pressing down on him and accusing him of having no water. And Moses comes to the Lord in prayer and he cries out to the Lord, verse 4, and he says, What shall I do with this people? Now this should be an encouragement to each of us. This is the prayer of Moses. He didn't sit down and write out a beautiful prayer. He didn't well-craft a theologically rich prayer with peppered Scripture verses all throughout it. You know what he said? Dear God, help me now. (laughs) He was crying out to the Lord with desperation. Brothers and sisters, our prayers don't always have to be be theologically rich and drawn out in in many, many, many sentences with with, with all the things just right. Sometimes it's just helpful for us to turn to the Lord and cry out to Him. I don't know why. But every time I read this verse, and it's one of those things, you've, you've got Bible verses as well, that something random is stuck in your head. Every time you read the Bible verse, it comes to mind, and you have no idea why. Every time I read this verse, it says, What shall I do with these people? For some reason, I think of a mother with several kids, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, children going everywhere, and her standing in the middle of the living room trying to figure out which ones are where, saying this, Lord, what shall I do with this people? That, that's just how I, I think that's, that's one of the best ways to pray, moms, around 1 o'clock when everything's going haywire. I also think of a dad who comes, on and comes home in the evening, and you walk through the front door with all these expectations of what you think you should see when you walk in the front door, and you walk in the front door, and you see your one-year-old daughter scream by you in the living room with nothing but a diaper on. And you're thinking, what's happened all day today? Because this doesn't look good, right? In other words... What shall I do with this people? Too often, or we, we need to acknowledge it so often, we need to ask that very question. God has placed us around people and in circumstances that are difficult. And we need to understand that God has placed us with those people. God has given you the people that you're around. It doesn't help if you leave. If you leave, for example, your work because Sam is there and he's irritating the stew out of you, and he's making everything difficult, and it's hard, so you want to go to another job so that you don't have Sam, guess what the Lord will do? He'll put you in another job, and lo and behold, Jim is there, and he's just like Sam, right? Why? Because the Lord is doing something in our midst. We need to acknowledge that God has placed us around these people. What shall we do with this people? 
Moses is asking where the Lord has wisely and providentially placed them in your, in your sphere of influence. Brothers and sisters, you need to acknowledge that the Lord here is placing Moses in the middle of these people. What shall I do with these people was the cry for Moses. Moses goes on, and we see here um, probably more clearly than even... I made the point earlier that there was this quarreling that was a more intense, um, intensified hostility and anger toward Moses. We don't see that. We kind of see it if we're looking at it. But here in verse 4 at the end, we see how intense and acute this quarreling has become. This congregation has turned to a mob. Moses says to the Lord in his prayer, They are almost ready to stone me. In other words, they're ready to kill me because of this, Lord. Moses is crying out to the Lord. He says, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. We need to understand that this this idea of them stoning him, that's a a capital offense. In other words, there wasn't one or two people deciding, hey, if we get rid of Moses, then everything will be fine. No, Moses was the leader of these people, and that's evident. They're getting ready to stone me isn't something that one or two people were trying to do to lynch Moses. No, this was all of this congregation that's mentioned in verse 1 of 17. All of them came together and they said, you know what? Moses has done such a poor job. Let's get together and vote and get rid of him. This was not a domestic dispute. This was not something that they just decided to have a disagreement about. No, this was a legal dispute. This was a legal judgment and accusation. All of God's people had gotten together, and there was talk in the camp that what they should do about this situation is to stone, today's vocabulary, put Moses in the electric chair. Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. This was a legal accusation that God's people were making towards them. It was so severe that it's the most severe of all judgments. They weren't saying, let's kick them out as a leader. No, they said, let's get rid of them altogether. Capital punishment, the death penalty. They were wanting to get rid of Moses. Why? Because they felt he was inept and unable. He was incompetent to lead God's people. And so, many were beginning to agree that what they needed to do was to kill Moses. Moses cries out to the Lord. Do you see that in verse 4? He says, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Verse 5, we see the Lord responding to Moses' prayer. What a precious and wonderful blessing. As Moses cries out to the Lord in prayer, the Lord then begins to answer Moses and to give him direction and instruction. We see that the Lord is treating this as a legal accusation and dispute as we look at the instructions that the Lord gives to Moses. So I want you to see in verse 5 that the Lord is treating this as if it's a legal dispute among the people. We see, as it says in verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people. This is the first thing the Lord tells him to do. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Do you see how the Lord is using this as a He's, he's using this as a, or he's treating this as a, um, a legal dispute of capital punishment. He is telling them to pass over or pass by the people, it says here. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of these representatives, which are the elders of Israel. He's asking them to do that so that all of those who are accusing him will see what Moses is doing in this leadership. So the Lord is saying, pass through the people. As you go before them, take with you some of the elders that are representatives of all the people. 
And as you do that, I want you to do something else. The second thing is this, verse 5. And take in your hand the staff. The staff. And so we have Moses going before all the people, bringing with him some of the elders, which are representatives of the people, and he's going to take with him his staff. And it goes on in our passage, and it says, it is the very staff with which you struck the Nile. And it's important that that note's mentioned there. What does God's people know about what happened when Moses struck the Nile with his staff? Was this a, a, um, a, a, a striking of mercy and compassion? And joy and bliss? No, this was, a, this was a staff that was an instrument of God for judgment towards the Egyptians in the case of the Nile. When Moses struck the Nile, the Nile turned to blood and there was judgment done towards the Egyptians. This staff that's mentioned and particularly communicated that this was the staff with which he struck the Nile... The Lord is saying, I want you to take the elders as representatives of all the people and make sure they know that you're doing this. And then take this staff in your hand, which you struck the Nile with, and I want you to go. Now, where is he wanting him to go? Notice with me in verse 6. It says, just a little bit into verse 6, it says that they're going to go to this place called the Rock of Horeb. Do you see that? Do you see that? So the Lord is giving Moses these instructions. And so here we have... Moses with the staff in his hand and the elders following in behind him. And Moses is going to this rock of Horeb. And it was the, rock, it was the Lord that was saying to the people of God, the Israelites, he was saying basically to them, by this act, and I want you to get this, the Lord was saying to all the elders and all the people of God, if you want a trial, I'll give you a trial. If you, want, if you want to make judgment calls about justice and righteousness, gather the elders, bring my staff of judgment, which is an instrument of judgment, Moses, and we will have a trial and let them see what is just and righteous in this deal. And this was not something where they were saying, finally, we get to have our voice. No, we need to understand that when Moses gathered up the elders and said, come with me as representatives of the people, and he took the staff, which was the instrument of judgment for God, and the presence of God, and the power of God in his hand. This was not a light moment for the Israelites. The Lord was clearly saying, let me show you what is right and just in this situation. They go to this rock of Horeb. They go to this rock. It says, in verse 6, the Lord says, Behold. You see that in verse 6? That word is easily just overlooked. But the idea here is that when, when the word behold is, is, is spoken, it's kind of like when Jesus in the New Testament says, Truly, truly. He's underscoring something. He's saying, I want you to get this. Make note. There wasn't exclamation points and highlighters during the time of, I and mean, we don't have that in our Old Testament, our, our Hebrew Bibles, okay? Um, they, weren't able to, they weren't able to do that. So how do they emphasize something and say, I want you to get this. I want, to, I want you to highlight it. I want you to underline it. I want you to put exclamation points around it. They say, behold. In other words, the Lord is saying, I want you to get this. I want you to see this with your, with your spiritual eyes. And the Lord says that as he takes these elders and he takes the staff of God in his hand, he says, behold, he tells Moses, behold, I will stand before you. 
The Lord is saying, I'm going I'm to come and stand before you and all these elders on the rock of Horeb. On the rock of Horeb. Now, this wasn't any ordinary place. This wasn't a random place. When we see this place called Horeb first in Exodus, it is in Exodus 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in the midst of a bush there. Moses knows exactly what's getting ready to happen. The Almighty God's going to show up. We need water. Do <laughs> you see what's happening here? They're still thirsty. But the Lord says, wait a minute, water is such a, such a not an issue. You need to know me. The Lord's bringing them before his presence because their problem in their quarreling isn't just that they need water. It's that they need God. The problem in your quarreling and my quarreling isn't that we need X, Y, or Z and our lives will be better. No, we need to know God. The Lord here is bringing these people before him. And this is, not, this is not a good thing for those who wanted to lynch God's man, Moses. Those who wanted to stone Moses. These elders are not coming thinking that this is going to be a fun time. Moses knows exactly what's going on. The Lord says, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike this rock. You see that word strike? Same word as was used a while ago when he says that staff is one that, you'll struck, that you struck the Nile with. He says, in the same way you struck the Nile, in judgment and justice, you're going to strike this rock, Moses, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, with this instrument of judgment toward the Egyptians when the Nile was struck, this staff of Moses, the Lord is now calling Moses to use it to strike the rock of Horeb. And it says he struck the rock. And the rock where the Lord is standing, it says, where the Lord is standing before them. The question I have for you is this. At this point, let me ask you this question. Who deserved the punishment for their sin? Who had sinned? Had Moses sinned in leading the people to this place where there was no water? No, because we find out in verse 1 that he was only doing what was according to the commandment of the Lord. That's what it says in Exodus 17.1. So Moses hadn't sinned. Had the Lord done something? Had the Lord been treating these people with injustice, with unrighteousness? Had had God been unfair in any way? No, not at all. The ones who had sinned were the bloodthirsty people who wanted Moses stoned. Because they assumed that where they were being led was not a just place for them to be. They were being treated unfairly. That Moses... And even God was not treating them in a way that they deserved. So what should we expect when we get to this portion of the passage at this juncture and when that staff comes down? Where should that staff come down? Where should the judgment be? Where should the justice come from? Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. Do not mistake, brothers and sisters, this for something that so often the world thinks of, and that is this. The staff did come down. There was a strike that day. The Lord didn't look at the uh, Israelites and say, you know what, 
you guys are right. You don't have any water. And I kind of can't blame you. You came all the way out here, and I didn't have water waiting for you. The Lord didn't do that. The Lord didn't say, you know, you've had a tough go. You've been away from Egypt now for several months. I kind of understand where you're coming from. You, you're quarreling. I'll kind of overlook it. No. The Lord is just and righteous. He's not going to look over our sin. He's not going to look over their sin, even in the sin of them quarreling because they do not have water to live. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that this staff came down, that this staff was used to strike, and yet the thing that was struck was the rock where the Lord was. Some translations, it can, it's interesting how it can be read. It can say... Um, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, like he's on top, or I will stand before you at the rock or with the rock. It's kind of hard to discern whether it doesn't make sense that the Lord is the rock, unless, wait a minute, he's striking the rock. Could it be that the Lord himself is this rock who's being struck? What compassion, what mercy, what amazing blessing is it that the Lord, instead of striking them in justice, And in righteousness, it says that he struck this rock, and out of this rock did not come condemnation. It did not come justice towards these people that had sinned, but instead the rock was struck, and instead there came gushing forth from this rock water that they were able to drink. The Lord showed mercy. He showed amazing grace. All all, uh, all other understanding would be these people deserve to die. They deserve this striking of the staff. Receiving the justice and the punishment for them. But instead, in their stead, the judgment and the justice was placed upon the rock. And blessing and provision, indeed, brothers and sisters, deliverance was given to them. Deliverance was given to them. Judgment was done, but instead of the people receiving it, the rock received this strike from the Lord's staff, this instrument of judgment. And the rock was the Lord himself. The Lord was standing before the people at the rock of Horeb, and the Lord was the one who was struck and received the judgment that the people deserved. You're saying, wow, you, you're making a jump here, and I'm not sure you should. I mean, it's, it, it, yes, I can kind of see you, but why all of a sudden are you saying that when this rock was struck, it was the Lord himself? Let me go a bit further. Not only was it the Lord that was struck on that day, it was Christ himself. That is the rock who was struck and received the judgment and the penalty for the sin that the people deserved. The rock was Christ. Where do I get this? In our passage this morning that Matt read for us in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, perfectly and rightly interpreting, looking back at Exodus chapter 17. He's explaining to the people there in Corinth that they're complaining and they're grumbling towards God's people in that church is evil and wicked and and, 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 and sinful. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, or verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. This is the cloud that God was leading his people by in Exodus chapter 17. And all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they were all a part of God's people. 
And they were being moved along by this cloud on the other side of the sea. 1 Corinthians 10. And all ate the same spiritual food. That's chapter 16 when we're talking about the manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Speaking of this water. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And what we're going to find is that they wandered around in Horeb for a long time. And it says, they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And this is what Paul says. And the rock was Christ. Christ. The one who took the, 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 the justice and the penalty for their sin and gave them an incredible mercy, water, and provision to sustain them. Well, as we see here in verse 6 at the very end, it says that this act was done before the elders. Notice what it says. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. Why was it important for the elders to know? Because the elders were the ones that were representatives of God. They were the ones that were getting ready to die if the staff had come down upon them. And yet they go back and they say, we've been delivered. We had sinned against our holy God and we've been delivered. The Lord has provided for us By striking of this staff to the rock, the rock now is providing for us water that we may be sustained. The elders were the first ones who delivered this message of deliverance to God's people as they went back to the congregation. But not only that, Moses didn't didn't want just the elders to be the ones who caused this message to be remembered. But he goes on and he names this, this place by two names. The two names are names that causes them to remember the sin by which they were delivered from. So in verse 7 it says, And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah. Why? Because Masa means quarreling and Meribah means testing. Because the quarreling of Israel, that's why it was called Masa, and because of the tested, because they tested the Lord there. That's why it's called Meribah. And they were asking the question by their testing, Is the Lord among us or not? Is he going to deliver us? Is he going to give us what we need or not? So this morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to remember. I want you to remember your sin, your enmity, your hostility of heart, how you have opposed God, how you have offended his word, how you have quarreled against his providences, and yet by faith in Christ you've been delivered. That he took the punishment that we deserved. That he, Christ, was struck that we might be, that we might live that we might receive not just a life, but a life of blessing. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, how? By His blood. He was struck. Jesus Christ the rock was struck. We've been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved, brothers and sisters. From what? By Him from the wrath of God. The question I have this morning is this. Is the Lord among us or not? The Christmas message is this. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He's come and He's dwelt among us. And He's shown us our salvation. Brothers and sisters, let us trust in Christ. Let us pray.